You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's show, in the wake of the disastrous Georgia primary election, voting rights journalist and author Ari Berman warns that time is running out for all states to get ready for the crucial November election. With a crush of mail-in ballots and in-person voting during a pandemic, and Republicans launching new voter suppression measures around the country, and what you can do to help protect the right to vote. But first, coronavirus infection rates are spiking in many states, even though the White House, Wall Street, and Republicans are pretending that the pandemic nightmare is over. It isn't. While millions of Americans have been thrown into unemployment, Wall Street is drunk with irrational exuberance and flush with GOP tax cut cash. Chuck Collins of the Institute of Policy Studies and co-author of the new report, Billionaire Bonanza 2020, explains how we got here and how we can begin to repair the obscene imbalances in our economy. Oh yeah, it's hilarious. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The economists of the National Bureau of Economic Research, the group that determines when recessions begin and end, have officially declared that we are now in a recession. That's probably not much of a surprise given the severe economic hit due to the coronavirus. What is slightly more surprising, however, is that the recession, according to the group, started in February of this year, before COVID initially bottomed out the market and and long before the virus-related shutdowns and layoffs began. The U.S. economy entered a recession in February, ending the longest expansion on record. The economists uh, said that employment, income, and spending peaked in February and then fell sharply afterwards as the viral outbreak shut down businesses across the country, marking the start of the downturn after nearly 11 full years of economic growth. 11 full years. So for the math impaired, yes, I'm speaking to you, MAGA people. Uh, 11 years ago was 2009. So that as uh, that was eight years of Barack Obama's administration, continued by another three years of Trump's administration until everything crashed on his watch beginning in February of this year. And then the virus struck, sending everything south. Well, not everything. 
apparently. As millions of Americans remain on the unemployment rolls, the stock market has, for some reason, rebounded. On Tuesday, the Nasdaq even briefly topped 10,000 for the first time ever making a record high for the third straight day there. The Dow and the S&P 500 have been seeing similar rallies of late, bringing the index's value to near where they were before the coronavirus crash in March tanked the markets by about 30%. So what's going on here? Coronavirus cases are increasing around the country, yet states and counties are opening for business. A record number of unemployment claims continue to pile in across the country now for 10 weeks in a row. And yet the stock market continues to rally. Up is down and down is up somehow in our twisted American moment in the Trump era where the president of the United States and his allies in states around the nation and yes, on Wall Street, seem to have a perverse incentive for some reason to pretend their way out of these ongoing and, yes, very real, despite what you have may have read or heard, these very real nightmares, ongoing nightmares that do not respond much to pretending, but you can try. It's certainly not keeping the billionaires on Wall Street from doing their patriotic best. Our friend David Dayen, financial investigative journalist at the American Prospect, reports today that it's not controversial to say that bankruptcy usually signals bad news for investors. Creditors get paid first and the most likely scenario wipes out shareholders entirely. But in the LOL nothing matters world of the 2020 stock market, bankruptcy is now a buy opportunity. Shares of Hertz, which filed for bankruptcy amid massive amounts of debt a couple of weeks back, have actually gone up a lot since that announcement. It's now trading significantly higher than it was before the bankruptcy. Part of this reflects the fact that Hertz owns a bunch of cars and that physical inventory could leave money for investors even after the creditors are made whole, but... He says it's also begin, uh, being driven up on hopes of recovery, which for bankrupt firms is completely nuts. And he says Hertz is not alone. J.C. Penney's stock has doubled since they announced bankruptcy. So has Whiting Petroleum, despite the oil glut at one point that led uh, crude into negative territory just a few weeks back. Yes, they were actually paying people to take the oil off their hands because they ran out of storage space and could not stop pumping at the same time, even as a lack of drivers on the road throughout the pandemic lockdowns also helped to just crash oil prices. The exuberance writes, Dayan has gotten so irrational on Wall Street that companies likely for liquidation are being bid up. The Federal Reserve bailout of investors has created a market uplift, he reports, that does not discriminate against even dead firms. People are stuffing their money in on the expectation that the Fed will sprinkle magic dust and make everything better. And since that has worked for a decade now, why not keep going? Why not even in bankruptcy? The Nasdaq hit a record high on Tuesday, and the S&P 500 is positive for the year. Positive for the year. This year, this pandemic year, when much of the nation and indeed much of the world is on lockdown with businesses shuttered everywhere still and millions of Americans newly out of work. Markets this irrational, says Dayan, do not usually end well.
Maybe, but don't tell that to the billionaires. You, you may be begging and pleading for your first unemployment check and trying to figure out how to pay your rent or mortgage again this month to avoid eviction, but America's wealthy class, they have no such problems, it seems. U.S. billionaires' total wealth surged by over $565 billion. That's an increase of more than 19% since its low point near the beginning of the pandemic. That, according to an updated report by the Institute for Policy Studies, the figures date from March 18, the rough start of the pandemic shutdown when most federal and state economic restrictions were in place during the same 11 weeks. 42.6 million U.S. workers filed for unemployment, uh, almost 2 million in just the last week. In a, a turbulent week in the life of the nation, these statistics remind us that we are more economically and racially divided than at any time in decades, said Chuck Collins, co-author of the report Billionaire Bonanza 2020. Surging billionaire wealth juxtaposed with the suffering and plight of millions undermines the social solidarity required for us to recover together in the years ahead, he said. According to IPS calculations, during just the past week, the U.S. billionaire class experienced a $79 billion jump in total wealth in just the past week. Well, how did you do last week? Joining us now for hopefully an explanation of what the hell is going on here and what we somehow need to do about it is Chuck Collins of the Institute for Public Policy. He's the co-author of the Billionaire Bonanza 2020 study. He is an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide and the director of the program on inequality and the common good at IPS, where he co-edits inequality.org. Chuck Collins, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, great to be with you, Brad. So, uh, okay, Chuck, in, in this uh, Billionaire Bonanza 2020 report, you find that in the 11 weeks since March 18, there's about a dozen U.S. billionaires, uh, at least, ha have seen their wealth accelerate by enormous numbers. I want to just run through a couple of them here real quick and get your thoughts. Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon and, uh, to a lesser extent, I suppose, the Washington Post, he is up 30, more than $36 billion. His unprecedented wealth surge, you write, is larger than the gross domestic product of Honduras in 2018. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook is up 30 billion. Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX is up 14 billion. Steve Ballmer, the uh, L.A. Clippers owner, former Microsoft CEO, he's seen his wealth go up 13 billion. Michael Bloomberg, the former Democratic presidential candidate for about five minutes and owner of the Bloomberg News Service. He's up 12 billion. Phil uh, Phil Knight of Nike is up 11 billion. Warren Buffett, private equity baron, is up about 7 billion. Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas casino owner and the Republican Party funder, he's up more than 6 billion. So, Chuck, some of those guys I can understand. Bezos at Amazon, Zuckerberg at Facebook. But Tesla has not been able to make cars for about 2 months, and the LA Clippers had their season cut short. You know, how many people are buying Nikes right now or going to Vegas casinos, which have been closed for months? What is going on here? Where are these guys making their money right now? Well, a lot of a lot of this is about bets and people betting on stocks going up in the future. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the, we're talking about the Wall Street casino here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people 
on that list who clearly are benefiting from sort of the pandemic economy. So like Steve Ballmer, mm -hmm. majority Microsoft shareholder, uh, you know, they own Zoom or uh, Skype and, and mm -hmm. uh, Teams. Eric Yon, who, who is the CEO of Zoom, has got $4 billion. He wasn't even on the billionaire list before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so some of them are clearly benefiting from the pandemic uh, because of their business niche. And others are just riding an up market, a gambling casino market, where actually when unemployment goes up and wages are low, profits are high. So stock markets generally love high profits and low wages. And that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. That's the way the market is wired. Is that is that um, why we have seen uh, seemingly each week as these uh, new terrible unemployment numbers come out on the same day that they say, oh, six million uh, new jobless claims, three million new jobless claims, that we tend to see the stock market sort of go through the roof every time Americans are fired. Yeah, no, that's that is you know uh, competition for for workers drives wages down, um, and and the other things people. There, a lot of the gambling is around any positive news about research, anything that might be a flicker of light in the economy also kind of sends the market up. Mm -hmm. um, and there's five companies, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. They account for a huge amount of the value of the S&P 500 right now. So when they're doing well, that sort of boosts the whole portfolio. Um, but, of course, as, as you know, you're – Wall Street is not the economy. Wall Street is mm -hmm. not the experience of most people in the economy. Only 14% of uh, Americans have direct investments in stock. So this tells us the story of sort of how the, the top 10%, and in this case, how the billionaires are seeing their wealth surge during an unfortunate time for everyone else. And, of course, it's not just the billionaires. I presume there are millionaires who are uh, making out very well in this particular market, which seems to be, uh, you know, going straight up, even as the economy is going straight down. I don't understand that. It does not seem sustainable. Um, and yet none of this is new. Uh, you, you report in your uh, billionaire bonanza report that uh, this is simply a continuation of what we have seen since since the tax cutting craze of the 80s and 90s, is that the reason for all of this? Is that the reason why there is so much extra money available to a certain segment of the population? Yeah, you know, I mean, we are, we're now at the culmination of four decades of growing income and wealth inequality. Uh, as we went into the pandemic, we were at maybe our greatest unequal level since the Gilded Age. And and the reality is, and I thought your 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 introduction was terrific, I mean, in terms of giving a sweeping picture, but mm -hmm. really since, since 2009, only about 20% of households have sort of recovered where they were in terms of savings and net worth prior to the Great Recession of mm -hmm. 2008. So think about that. 80% of households kind of went into the pandemic with a economic hangover, mm -hmm. still not really fully back on their feet uh, in the last 11 years. So uh, this this recession and pandemic are going to supercharge the existing income and wealth inequalities that we already are living through. You, uh, you find that between 1990 and 2020, U.S. billionaire wealth soared 1,130 percent, an increase more than 200 times greater than the 5.3 percent growth of U.S. median wealth. Measured as a percentage of their wealth, the tax obligations of Americans' billionaires decreased 79 percent 
between 1980 and 2018. Uh, how does that compare to the, the, the tax obligations of America's non-billionaires during that same period? You know, the tax obligations of most people have pretty much stayed flat or even gone up just a little bit you know, over the last couple decades. Uh, so that's, that's where you see the biggest uh, tax cuts, if mm-hmm. you will, at the very top. And the Trump and that, and that data is really before the Trump tax cut fully kicks in, the uh, 2017 giveaway, trillion-dollar giveaway to the, to the top. Um, but, yeah, this is, you know, we're, we're just kind of absorbing now the, the pre-existing condition, if you will, of mm-hmm. extreme inequality in America. Yeah, 78% of households are now living paycheck to paycheck, while 20% have zero or negative net worth. That is uh, somewhat obscene, frankly, uh, given the comparison uh, to all those numbers we've just been rattling through. So, uh, Chuck, this uh, inequality, which seems to be growing, your report does offer a number of recommendations. I'd like to fly through uh, some of them as quickly as we can here to get an idea of uh, you know how and if this can ever be reversed? Because boy, I'll tell you what—the you know past uh, week or two, as the stock market continues to soar, it does not feel like it's going to be reversed. It feels like, well, you know, going back to John Edwards in 2004, it feels very much like two Americas, uh, to say the least. So, some of the recommendations you offer: establish a pandemic profiteering oversight committee that goes beyond oversight of stimulus funds. What does that mean specifically? Well, if you think back, you know, during World War II and the Korean War, uh, it was it was considered distasteful to make vast amounts of money when everyone else was making these huge sacrifices. Oh, how, that's how when, quaint! Uh, how quaint! Yes, it's, 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 it is. Yeah, um, and that's where actually. Uh, President Harry Truman kind of made his reputation. The Truman Committee mm-hmm. dragged these uh, company CEOs in front of his committee who were profiteering during World War II and just said, look, this is unacceptable, unseemly, mm. led to the passage of a, a, you know, profiteering taxes during World War II and during the Korean War. So one thing you can do is, yeah, if uh, somebody's profiteering off, their, off the, the misfortunes of the whole rest of society, you just tax it and invest it in something like healthcare infrastructure. Um, so I think those are those are examples of uh, of things that we could do right now. And and do you have? And I've got a, a number of others that you've listed out. Uh, and I'll probably ask the same questions on this. But do you have any sense that uh, Democrats are? Because I presume Republicans are not calling for this, but I don't even know if Democrats are calling for this or if this is something that uh, Joe Biden would try to institute uh, if if he were to win this November. Well, you know, a lot of Democrats, as part of the the first stimulus bill, really pushed hard, and there there actually are really good oversight committees mm-hmm. uh, that have been put in place to monitor the stimulus bill. And uh, obviously, there's more that could be done. But and we're arguing that they should be doing you know audits on 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 the racial wealth dimension impacts of this mm-hmm. these policies, on which companies are are kind of um, using taking tax dollars and, and moving their money offshore. So um, there is an appetite for oversight, and uh, it's not, you know, and even some Republicans understand there needs, if you're going to put out trillions of dollars of expenditures, somebody's got to mind the store. You call for levying an emergency 10% millionaire 
income tax. Now, uh, Elizabeth Warren proposed uh, something I think that was far less onerous during the uh, presidential uh, campaign, during the debates. She seems to have trouble winning support from it uh, for it, e- even from fellow Democrats. Is there more of an appetite for a, a millionaire income surtax? And uh, you also call for uh, a, f- a federal estate tax. Uh, to be more progressive and to institute a wealth tax. It seems like we've been doing the opposite of all of those things for decades now. No, you're right. I mean, the the good news, Brad, is there's overwhelming support uh, among the general public for taxing the very rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the you know, I think a well, a, you know, even Republicans, a plurality of Republicans, supported Elizabeth Warren's two percent wealth tax idea. So the pressure is building. People understand the rich have been gaming the system and, and avoiding their taxes. One of the reasons we propose this 10% surtax is you can really imp- you can sort of ramp it up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We have an income income tax system in place, and you basically say any income over over three million, you know, the top one tenth of one percent uh, pays that 10% surcharge, whether it's capital gains, income from investments, or income from work, all taxed the same at that level. And uh, I think the principle is, look, when it comes around time to figure out how to pay for these trillion dollars of deficit spending, we should hold, you know, the 99% harmless for the first couple trillion. It should come from the billionaire class and, mm. the, and the top one, 10% who've, who've gotten most of the tax breaks over the last several decades. Doesn't that bring us back to uh, the, the the original problem that now seems to be baked into the cake? I mentioned Sheldon Adelson, uh, his... Uh, his fortunes are up more than $6 billion throughout this pandemic, a huge funder of the Republican Party, you know, as are all the folks who hang out with uh, with Charles Koch and so many. And this is also on, on the left as well. You've got these billionaires and millionaires that seem to be funding the political system that now you, Chuck, are, you know, calling on the political system to reverse their fortunes. It seems like it's not ultimately reversible if you have, uh, you know, the very people that are keeping the politicians in power are the ones who would be most hurt by these taxes. Well, you know, here we are. We're living in an oligarchy where the rich use their wealth and power to get more wealth and power. And, you know, the only way to reverse that, and and, and it was, uh, you know, we did reverse uh, the first Gilded Age, and it was because of people's movements and the emergence of the labor movement. It was also because of a depression and a war. But uh, it ultimately was people came together and said, we need to tax the rich, we need to tax inheritances, we need to break up dynasties and monopolies. It required, uh, you know, the fight of our lives. And uh, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're heading into. Heading uh, into? So I don't have an easy, uh, meaning I, I think, yeah. you know, the pressure is building from below. Uh, it could go right-wing populist, you know, just like after the 2000 nine you know recession lifted you have both the right-wing tea party but you also had occupy and, mm-hmm. the, and the movements pushing to address uh inequality and in the and the concentration of wealth of the one percent i think we're going to see you know the merger of black lives matter and tax the billionaires and let's build uh, an economy that works for everybody not just the rich and uh a lot of people would salute that program yep. and maybe even get in the streets which is why some people are working so hard to keep those people from uh, getting into the ballot 
box into the voting booth. Uh, yeah. Chuck Collins is an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide. He's also the director of the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies. He co-edits inequality.org, where you can read this this, uh, billionaire bonanza 2020 study and his recommendations on what the hell we can do about it. His new book is Inequality in, uh, I'm sorry, Is Inequality in America Irreversible? You can find that also at inequality.org, and you can follow them on the Twitters at inequality.org, and you can follow Chuck and uh, harass him all you like on the Twitters at Chuck99 to 1. Chuck Collins, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you'll uh, join us again in the near future. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. Thanks, Chuck. Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, the fight to protect the right to vote and have that vote counted accurately. Brad's recent conversation with voting rights journalist Ari Berman of Mother Jones on the extraordinary measures that Republicans around the country are launching to suppress the vote in 2020. This is Bradcast Recounted. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It has been a rough couple of weeks for Donald Trump and his Republican Party as polls Polls show that Americans are more concerned about the police response and Trump's response to the police killing of George Floyd than they are to the mostly peaceful protests that we've seen around the nation and the world over the past two weeks, demanding reform to the systemic and institutionalized racism built into our policing systems. The good news for Republicans is that despite the deaths of more than 110,000 Americans from the COVID disease... The coronavirus continues to wreak havoc in our primary elections and almost certainly on the never more critical general elections set for November 3rd. Just one of the reasons many top Republican officials see the coronavirus as potentially helpful to their fortunes was detailed in a new study by the Center for Election Innovation and Research this week. 
In recent months, the survey finds several states have experienced a remarkable decline in their new voter registration numbers. The trend, they observe, is especially notable when compared with new voter registration numbers from the months leading up to the last presidential election back in 2016. The center compiled official new voter registration data for the spring of 2020 and compared them from figures from the same time period in 2016. Among their findings, voter registration took a major hit as the coronavirus outbreak began, according to the survey of 13 states. Several of them are key battleground states on both the presidential and senatorial levels this year. All 13 all 13 saw a decline in their new registrations in April when compared to the registration numbers in April of 2016. 11 also saw lower registration numbers in March. The dip came after all 13 states had bested their 2016 registration numbers in January. So things were looking good as of January. And then came the coronavirus. And of course, I say looking good. I mean, looking good for those who you know, believe in voting rights and democracy. And then they started looking good for Republicans who don't seem to believe in voting rights or democracy. After January, that uh, good news uh, for voting rights advocates came to a sharp end when the lockdowns from the coronavirus struck. This report looked at voter registration data from Arizona, California, Colorado, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, and Virginia. And in all, it found virtually the same thing, that the pandemic has hobbled typical registration opportunities. Trips to the driver's license office and other governmental offices, an activity that the lockdowns have limited, are when many voters have traditionally registered to vote. The report notes that several states in its survey had, since 2016, implemented an automatic voter registration system that stood to boost registration numbers out of DMV interactions. But without those interactions, the automatic voter registrations do not kick in. The center reports that the practice of automatic voter registration at DMVs has added millions of eligible Americans to their state's voter registration rolls in recent years and should have led to this year's new voter registrations overshadowing those of 2016. But all of that may now be derailed. Additionally, the center notes the in-person fieldwork done by third-party registration groups has also been scrambled by the pandemic, though some of those groups saw hopeful signs of increased registration activity around the recent Black Lives Matter protests. The decline in registrations is particularly troubling as election officials prepare to scale up absentee voting operations for the pandemic. While some states offer Election Day registration, that will do little to help potential new voters in states which plan to proactively mail absentee ballots or ballot applications to already registered voters. The effectiveness of those efforts depend on the rolls being up to date and for voters to not only be registered, but registered at their correct and current address. Of course, that is just one of the new battles that is now being waged by voting rights advocates across the country in the wake of the pandemic and in the face of a GOP, which, according to Ari Berman in the new July-August issue of Mother Jones magazine, 
is looking for and finding new ways to prevent voters from being able to cast a vote at all this year. Those efforts appeared to pay off this past week in Georgia as hours-long lines forced uh, voters disproportionately in heavily Democratic and heavily minority districts to wait in line for hours. Lines that stretched around blocks and blocks in the heat and humidity and thunderstorms after thousands of requested absentee ballots never arrived in voters' mailboxes, leaving them with the choice of losing their right to vote or risking their lives amid a pandemic to exercise that hard-fought right. But long lines are a problem that is neither new nor even unique to states run by Republicans. While the hours-long lines in Georgia were exacerbated by poll consolidations due to the virus and a brand-new, unverifiable touchscreen voting system and electronic poll books, all of which failed in many jurisdictions, the week before, before Georgia, we saw similarly long lines, uh, for example, in Washington, D.C.'s primary. And before the pandemic even struck out here, on Super Tuesday in Los Angeles County, the nation's most populous and arguably most democratic uh, jurisdiction in the country, we saw similar long lines that voters were forced to wait in all night long thanks to unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and electronic poll books that were deployed for the first time as well. As in Georgia, the new systems were a disaster for voters as they failed across the county, leaving voters online until after midnight here in L.A. County, where polls had also been consolidated even before the pandemic. By and large, however, where Democrats fail through incompetence and poor decision-making, Republicans, as our guest earlier in the week, election integrity champ Marilyn Marks, a Republican herself, noted, Republicans often do this by design. Joining us now to discuss just some of those GOP designs this year, as detailed in his new report at Mother Jones, headlined How the Coronavirus Handed the GOP New Ways to Squash the Vote, is Ari Berman of Mother Jones, where he is a senior reporter covering voting rights, as he previously did at The Nation for many years prior. He is also author of the landmark book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, documenting the decades-long minority fight to register and cast a vote in this country, a battle which shamefully continues to this day. Uh, it has been a while, Mr. Berman, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Uh, listen, I, I want to be sure to cover here what, what you fear most about this November's critical election, and I know that could be a long list, but also where possible, what citizens, what we the people can do to sort of help counter it between now and November 3rd. But let me start with the Center for Election Innovation and Research report, which your reporting at Mother Jones, at least in Texas and in Mitch McConnell's Kentucky, he is facing a potentially tough re-election. Uh, your uh, reporting appears to confirm what the center found, that basically a voter registration groups, you note, are seeing a huge drop in new registrations since the pandemic this year? Yeah, absolutely. Registrations are way down because of coronavirus, because um, basically every group that does voter registration mm -hmm. in virtually every state had to stop doing that work, and also people didn't go to the DMVs and other public agencies where they would normally be registered. Mm -hmm. So the, the combination of those two things meant that in an election year, 
in which millions of people would be registered, there are hundreds of thousands of people that did not register who otherwise would have in these key states. And that may be changing a little bit now as people venture out a little bit more, um, as people attend protests. But by and large, we are still seeing a much lower rates of registration in 2020 than we otherwise would because of the pandemic. And even without the pandemic, uh, you note, for example, Texas is one of the states that makes it very difficult for third party organizations to sign up to sign up new voters at all. Well, to talk about some of uh, some of the way that they do that, it sort of uh, underscores Marilyn Mark's contention that much of this is by design and maybe why the state has one of the lowest, if not the lowest turnout rates in the country. Yeah, so what they do in, in Texas, Texas is one of 10 states with no online registration, which to me is so crazy in this day and age that you can't register to vote um, online. And then the, the second thing Texas does is they actually make people who register voters get deputized by the state. So you have to go to an official training. Um, that you have to be deputized every two years. You can only register voters in the county in which you've been deputized. Well, Texas has 254 counties. Wow. So if you wanted to register voters in 254 counties, you would actually have to be deputized 254 times. Some of these trainings were barely held to begin with. During coronavirus, there's been almost no deputization. So it's really, really, really difficult, even in good times, to register voters in Texas. And now it's virtually impossible when the only groups that register people aren't really operating. Some of them are starting to venture out now, I'm told, but also coronavirus is spiking in Texas right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't expect things to go back to normal there or pretty much anywhere um, for some time. So we are facing a very, very challenging landscape in which people who want to register for the first time or have to update the registration, they can have a hard time doing so in those states that don't have a good online system. Recently, a a federal judge in Texas found that all voters, not just those over 65 years of age, which is an unconstitutional cutoff, in my opinion, but that all voters would be allowed to request an absentee ballot in Texas, uh, citing fears of the coronavirus. But the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, appealed that ruling he threatened to criminally prosecute third parties who recommended voters uh, do so that you know they they request an absentee because of fear of getting sick and dying and then he appealed that and they got a very confusing ruling from the very right-wing appeals court there can voters under 65 in texas now request an absentee ballot citing fear of catching covid or not do we even know i had a very difficult time understanding what the court was trying to say there frankly the so the the short answer is we don't know because they made it um, extremely subjective so texas has the most ridiculous law in the country in my opinion which a few other states also have which is that if you're over 65 you can get an absentee ballot for any reason Mm-hmm. But if you're under 65, they make it incredibly hard to get one. You either have to be out of t- out of your county on election day, in jail, or um, have a physical illness or disability. Now they are saying that coronavirus is not a physical illness or disability. That's what the Republican Attorney General is claiming. What the Texas Supreme Court said was that they agreed with Paxton that fear of contracting coronavirus is not sufficient of a disability. However, they said they weren't going to investigate whether or not people have that disability or not. So theoretically, this is a situation where that could happen. You could interpret that you believe this is a legitimate disability Mm -hmm. if you're under 65. You could request an absentee ballot 
you could vote by mail, then the Republican Attorney General could investigate you for voter fraud, for falsely claiming that you had coronavirus or fear of coronavirus when in fact you didn't. So basically, the net effect of this is that if you're confused by it, if, I can, if, if I'm confused about it, a lot of people are just not going to vote by mail because yep. they don't want to open themselves up to legal prosecution, yep. which Texas has done very aggressively, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, a black woman in Texas, Crystal Mason, got five years in prison yep. uh, for voting on supervised release when she didn't even realize she was ineligible and her ballot wasn't counted. So I think you're going to have a really insane situation in Texas in November where if the public health situation is, is bad, voters under 65 are going to have a very, very hard time voting by mail, whereas anyone over 65 is going to have a very easy time voting by mail. And I think it's great that we're encouraging older people to vote by mail, but I think it's absolutely ridiculous that if you're under 65, Mm -hmm. it's basically impossible for you to vote by mail in Texas. I mean, that is so out of step with what people are recommending you do in a pandemic. It's also unconstitutional, according to a, a lawsuit that's been filed, uh, saying that it's a violation of, I think, the, was it the 24th Amendment that uh, allows voters... 26th o- Amendment. 26th Amendment, yes, thank you, uh, that allows people over the age of 18 to vote, and that restricting that to only people who are over 65, the uh, the case argues, is a violation of the Constitution. I actually think they got a pretty good case there. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Meanwhile, uh, Ari Berman, you've been covering what's happening right now, right now in Iowa, which has been a swing state in previous years. They had a very successful primary election about two weeks ago as run by the state's Republican secretary of state. He sent out absentee applications to all registered voters. It went Reportedly, it went well, but now Republicans in the state legislature are actively trying to make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, exactly. So Iowa was one of the few states where this process actually seemed to go pretty well, Mm -hmm. where they sent an absentee ballot or request forms to people. Evidently, people got them, uh, requested their ballots. They had record turnout in the primaries. And then the Republican legislature, I think inspired by what Donald Trump and the National Republican Party is saying, basically said that they are going to prevent uh, their own Secretary of State, the Republican Secretary of State, who's popularly elected, Mm -hmm. from being able to mail absentee ballot requests to all voters, which is so insane. Number one, he's not sending ballots. He's sending absentee ballot requests. So how could that be at all objectionable? Secondly, he's a Republican. Third, he is popularly elected. So they're taking away from power from someone who's an elected, not an appointed official, um, which is so crazy to me. And this all happens, of course, under the backdrop of Iowa's competitive again. It's competitive in the presidential election. Joni Ernst, uh, the senator mm-hmm. uh, there, it looks like she is in a basically a tied race with uh, Democrat Teresa Greenfield, who was chosen as the Democratic nominee for the Senate, or the state legislature could be in play. And so they're panicking. And this is a really remarkable situation. I can't think of any other state where the Republican legislature is overturning the authority of the Republican Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. I think I was the only state that's doing that. But I think it's a really worrisome development, because in the primaries, there was a pretty much general consensus that at least sending out absentee ballot request forms was something that anyone could do. Mm-hmm. And you saw both Republican and Democratic secretaries of state um, doing this pretty much across the board. Um, now, if they don't do it for November, when there's so many more voters that are going to participate, including so many new voters and infrequent voters, mm-hmm. if they're not set at the very least, 
absentee ballot request forms, I think they're going to have a very hard time figuring out how to vote by mail. Because as you know, in states unlike California, where you don't get a ballot in the mail, voting by mail can be very confusing, and there's a lot of intricate rules surrounding how to get a ballot and then to have, have it actually count. Yeah, and and that's a, a point that I wanted to make here and ask you about, because, you know, we, we'll... Let's go go to Georgia. Uh, we've discussed it in some detail over this past week, as you might imagine. Uh, I'm wondering what you see as having gone mainly wrong there, because in Georgia, their Republican secretary of state also sent out absentee ballot applications to all active registered voters. And of course, active means whatever their Republican secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, I think, decides that it means. But it was a disaster. How uh, hopeful are you that we won't see a repeat disaster like that in uh, in Georgia when the state is arguably up for grabs in the presidential contest for the first time in years? I mean, I don't see how anyone could see what's going on in Georgia and be hopeful about November, um, given the colossal failures that occurred in, in this recent primary. And it just wasn't one thing. You don't have an election this bad when only one thing goes wrong. About four or five things went wrong. Mm-hmm. First off, the voting machines that you mentioned that everyone said they shouldn't buy didn't work well. Um, they didn't work properly, and people also didn't seem to know how to use them. So that was, that was the first problem. Mm-hmm. Second problem is there was not nearly enough polling places. Uh, they thought that, I guess, everyone would vote by mail. turned out a lot of people decided to vote in person, either because they wanted to vote in person or because they didn't get their absentee ballots in time or they didn't get them at all. Um, the third problem was there wasn't enough poll workers. Um, poll workers were sick or they were afraid. There needs to be many more poll workers in November, including a lot of young poll workers. Um, so that made lines longer. Um, the fourth thing is that they didn't seem to do a very good job of helping people vote by mail, uh, which is to say a lot of people anecdotally said they didn't get their ballots um, or mm-hmm. they got them too late or there was some issue or another. So it didn't go smoothly like it did in Iowa or some other places. So it was kind of one thing after another. But, I mean, my takeaway from Georgia, um, the voting machine thing is a little specific to Georgia. That they, they are one of the few states that bought new voting machines well also also pennsylvania also north carolina and then of course also uh los angeles but that's not a a battleground state i mean there are uh, similar concerns i guess there's a handful of states that could fall into that category Mm -hmm. um but what i was going to extrapolate from georgia though is um number one states have a long way to go to refine the vote by mail process and I'm really worried that we're not going to do it that well in November, that one primary cycle is not enough, that you need one or more general elections in which everyone is using it to be comfortable doing so, especially in a situation with a pandemic where you already have election workers who are totally stressed out because of the conditions, that they have to process hundreds of thousands of mail ballots that they would not have otherwise had to process mm-hmm. in the normal election year. Then the second thing I'm really concerned about from Georgia is that we're not going to have enough polling places and enough poll workers uh, for November, because it's very clear that in most states there's going to be some sort of fusion system, that some people are going to want to vote by mail and will succeed in voting by mail, but some people won't want to vote by mail or they won't get their ballot in time and thus they'll have to vote in person and there has to be enough polling locations there has to be enough polling workers to accommodate that what we've seen across the board not just in georgia um but in maryland Mm -hmm. in dc in wisconsin Mm -hmm. in nevada but there have not been nearly enough polling places in nevada there were three polling places in las vegas clark county for 1.1 million registered voters (laughs) 
And, and that was a state where the Secretary of State actually sent ballots to people. So it was actually pretty easy to vote by mail. Mm-hmm. And still, for a lot of different reasons, people decided to vote in person. They either liked voting in person or they didn't get their ballots. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a complete disaster. There was seven-hour waits in Las Vegas. The last person voted at 3.07 in the morning. Really? Um, so <laughs> if we don't figure out how to both do vote by mail efficiently and also how to vote in person efficiently and also how to do this in a pandemic, we're looking at a possible and likely disaster in November. And that's really the scenario that, that worries me. And I was worried about this before Georgia, but now I'm a lot more worried about it after. Yeah, and I was worried about this before the pandemic, and now I'm a lot more worried about it uh, after. And I think people don't really understand how, they have no idea what an arduous process it is, actually, when you're dealing with absentee ballots. They do not seem to, the states, even those who are welcoming of this idea, don't seem to have the staffing in place to handle the incoming applications and the outgoing ballots. Uh, As I understand, Georgia outsourced uh, sending out ballots to a company in Arizona, as I understand it, adding to the length of time it took to get ballots back to voters. Uh, You know, I I don't know. Is there time and resources available between now and, well, I want to say November, but it's not really. Ballots go out in October, which means ballot uh, requests have to happen in September. So we're talking about just a few months from now. Do you have any sense that uh, states around the country have either the time or the resources that would be needed, even if they wanted to do this correctly? I think some states will and some states won't. It's going to be a very haphazard process in a lot of places. Based on what I've seen in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, that there's a, a extreme amount of work to do in a very short amount of time under very difficult conditions with not enough funding um, to do all this. And remember, Congress has only passed $400 million in election aid to states mm-hmm. in the first economic stimulus bill. Uh, there, I think, were two more stimulus bills. Nothing was in them. Um, finally, uh, Democrats uh, proposed $3.6 billion dollars in this HEROES Act, but it was too late. The Republican-controlled Senate's probably not going to do anything mm-hmm. on that entire bill, right. um, let alone on the election aid. And so states are running out of time. They're running out of money. Uh, their coronavirus is increasing in a lot of places. So I'm really, really concerned about vote by mail in November. That's why I think they have to have enough polling places, because all of yeah. these states know how to vote in person if they do it well. Like, people are used to voting in person in, in Georgia and all these other states. As long as they have enough poll workers and enough polling sites to make it easy. And so, whatever the projections are of how many people are going to vote by mail, I would be very skeptical of those numbers, because mm-hmm. I think even if there's an unprecedented surge in ballots, there's still going to be a lot of people that are not going to get their ballots or just are not going to feel comfortable voting by mail at all. Because one thing we know from the data is that particularly communities of color, they're more distrustful of voting by mail. And so they're going to want to vote in person. And that's one reason why um, so many of the lines we saw in Georgia were in um, majority black communities, because those are areas that, number one, don't trust mail voting to begin with. Mm -hmm. And number two, uh, those are the places where polling places are always cut. 
particularly in states that are controlled by Republicans, because they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. There's short lines in white neighborhoods, and there's long lines in black neighborhoods. And now they have an excuse to close down, oh, we couldn't find enough poll workers, so we have to you know close down uh, precincts wherever we may feel we want to close down precincts. Ari, every uh, presidential election year we hear the Democrats will have an army of attorneys on the ground to make sure that people can vote and that their votes are counted as cast every presidential election year. I find that claim to be, let's say, greatly exaggerated from reality. Though this year, I believe uh, Mark Elias, the uh, Democratic Party's election attorney, has already filed suits in about uh, 16 states, I think, to sort of force expansions of uh, absentee voting in various ways. Joe Biden was on the uh, on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah this week, and he made a similar reference to this army of attorneys. You have 23, I believe, in the states have passed over over uh, 82 pieces of legislation, making it harder for people to vote. Harder. That's why we're putting together a major initiative of lawyers to go out and make sure that we're in every single district in the country to patrol this. Ari, do you have confidence, based on your reporting, that A, the Democrats appreciate the full scope of hellstorms that the uh, GOP will attempt to use to block the vote in all sorts of ways here, and that B, they actually have the apparatus uh, legally and on the ground to counter it. I mean, I think it, it, it remains a, a work in progress. I think that the Democrats and, and the other voting rights groups have gotten more aggressive legally. I think they have larger election protection networks than they have before. The problem is a lot of these issues don't prop up until Election Day. So, like, Georgia actually had a decent system in place where, as you said, the Republican Secretary of State was sending absentee ballot requests to all voters, which is not a, the, the greatest thing you could do, but for a Republican in Georgia, is not that bad. Mm-hmm. And the mail voting system still didn't work very well. And then also, there needed to be more awareness to begin with that there weren't going to be enough polling sites. And there needed to be more advocacy months before the election saying, keep enough polling places open. And so I think these conversations have to really happen now um, in, in terms of, and, and the demand has to be that you make it as easy as possible to vote by mail, which should mean mailing ballots to all registered voters or at the very least mailing absentee ballot requests to all registered voters. And you make sure it's done efficiently and accurately and there's enough workers to process this, but that you also make sure that there are enough polling places in all of these Area so that people can vote safely in person. And this is not just something that you, I think you can litigate. This has to be done through advocacy and all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm just re- really wondering um, what's going to happen, because all of these states don't have enough election workers, they don't have enough poll workers, they don't have enough money. And so if they don't get those things, litigation alone is not going to be sufficient. Last question for you, Ari Berman. Um, what, if anything, can we, the people... As you see it, what recommendations do you have uh, for us to sort of counter the weaponization that you're talking about as uh, the GOP is weaponizing the coronavirus uh, this year? We can't just sit around and wait for political parties and attorneys. There must be something that we the people can do as you see it. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of different things that people could do. First, if I would volunteer to be a poll worker, if you're healthy enough and feel comfortable doing so, uh, one reason why uh, there's long lines and employees are going to be cut is because they don't have enough workers. Um, that's one thing. Uh, secondly, I would contact um, your Secretary of State. 
I would contact your uh, state reps, and I would contact your local board of election, mm-hmm. because that's where decisions are often made, at the local board of election. And I would say, what is your plan for mail voting? How easy are you going to make it to vote by mail? How are you going to ensure that ballots get set in time? And how are you going to make sure that ballots get counted? Because all of those details really matter a lot for mail voting. Then I would ask them, what's your plan for in-person voting? And make sure that they have enough sites open. And if they're like, well, we're going to have like one site per county. Well, that's a disaster. I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing reports now that Kentucky is going to have one site per county that there's going to be one polling place for all of Louisville, mm. for example. Oh. Well, we know, I can, we know that's going to be a disaster. I can tell you right now there's a competitive Senate primary there. Yep. I can tell you right now, two weeks out, that's going to be an absolute disaster. One polling place for a city as large as Louisville. And so I think like citizens have to become involved here, yep. uh, and probably this is a year where you could open a new polling place if people volunteered uh, to open it. Or you could sign up for a poll worker in ways that you probably couldn't before. So um, I'm hopeful that people are, are getting um, more aware. And I also think if, if you look at the system, what happened in Wisconsin made people a lot more aware of this issue. What happened in Georgia has made people even more aware of this issue. Um, the killing of George Floyd and the protests have put more emphasis than I've ever seen before on issues of racial justice, on issues of civil rights. Um, Voting rights is one of those issues. I think there's going to be a lot more awareness now than there was previously, and if we can transit that momentum into change, there's an opportunity to try to have uh, a reasonably fair and democratic election in November. As usual, it's up to we the people. Ari Berman is author of the book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. His latest article at motherjones.com is How the Coronavirus Handed the GOP New Ways to Squash the Vote. Please go read it and please go follow him on the Twitters at Ari Berman. Hey, thank you, brother. Always great speaking with you, my friend. Thanks so much, Brad. I appreciate it. You bet. And that's it for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to our guests today, Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies and Ari Berman of Mother Jones. And of course, to you for spending part of your day with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that is thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to stay independent on your public area airwaves during these unprecedented times. Please find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen, and as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. Good luck, world.